If you'll open your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, and we'll be reading four verses in Titus chapter 2. If you put your thumb there, and then go to the book of Ezra, I'm going to do one verse to start with in Ezra uh, in chapter 7. So chapter 7 of Ezra, verse 10, and we'll begin actually with the verse in Ezra. Um, as I was reading this week, I came across this verse, and I just thought, wow, what a really good sermon this would make, because one sentence breaks into three parts so beautifully. So let's look at, Titus, or, uh, at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had prepared or set his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Can you see how easy that would line up to be a, a sermon? He had prepared his heart, or he set his heart, like, like to set your face, to set your attentions. He determined that his heart was going to study the Lord's law, that he was going to take his Bible and dig into it. He determined that that was what was going to happen. And when he did, he also determined to do something that so many people don't, and that is to practice what he read that he was going to do it, that he was going to practice it. He was, going to, he was going to make use of what he read. And then it said to teach in Israel the statutes and judgments. So as you look at the law of the Lord, what does the law mean? Why is the law wonderful? And why is Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, all about how wonderful the Bible itself is? Why is the law of the Lord so important when we as Christians don't obey God through the law. We are not, we are not made right with God through our obedience because, because it, it's, we're not, we wouldn't be good enough. If uh, God does not hire us, if he hired us as employees, he would have to fire us for incompetence because we cannot be good enough. We are adopted as children and loved as children. That's how God approaches us. But the law has its place, and it is a serious high place. We'll see uh, that together. So where I've decided to go is Titus chapter 2. And there is a beautiful section here in chapter 2 on the gospel, the grace of God. It says here in Titus that the grace of God brings salvation. So let's, let's read together. This is God's word. For the grace of of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So here we have a very young man that Paul is leaving as pastor in this town. And he said, even though you're young, I don't want anyone to despise you because you're young I don't want anyone to despise you because you have the authority because you are going to tell them a message that could absolutely change the world. 
and that is that there is a grace from God that brings salvation. So first thing I wrote down is there is a salvation-bringing grace. If you were to look at the grace of God, the grace of God is everywhere. The grace of God isn't, there's not one grace of God. There's many, many graces. God graces people by treating them as though um, they did not deserve his wrath. So I, often, I, when I pray for grace, I will always pray for mercy first. I'll say, God, give me mercy that you might be able to give me grace because I have to be brought to zero before he can give me anything. I have to be brought up from my negative infinity because I have offended dignity. I have offended infinite dignity. That is why hell is infinite. You, many people think that, that the, the punishment is not the same as the crime, that I do this or don't do this, and for that reason God gives me unending pain. Well, how is that not unfair? Well, it's because of whom I've offended. God is infinite in his holiness, infinite in the dignity of his person, and I offended that dignity. So it's an infinite offense. I have an infinite offense before an infinitely holy God. And when people know that, suddenly now there's a seriousness that they approach God with, that God is not safe. God is not the guy upstairs, the dude, the buddy. He's not my buddy. I approach him as God. And the grace of God can appear in many ways. The grace of God that did not destroy us today. The grace of God that allowed it to rain so that there will be water in the ground to, to bring up from the well. That is a grace of God. And that grace appears to all men. That grace is uh, the water rains on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. God gives good lives to many people that hate his guts. There's laughter and there's family and there's relationships and there's provision and there is many times a good life that ends in sorrow because they've never known God as the Savior that he's offering himself. But there, according to this, there is a grace of God that does bring salvation. And it says here, we're in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. All men. There is a universal proclamation of this grace. Now when it says this grace appeared, that's Jesus Christ. The grace of God that brings salvation is that God himself came to us, chased us down. We did not have to climb up like the Tower of Babel to God. God can't be approached by us. When they made the Tower of Babel, there's a comedy line in the Bible where it says, and God bent over real far to look down upon the, the tower that they had made because God is, can't be reached with a, with, a, with a tower. But he came down to us and met our need when we did not know our need and, and provided for us in a way that only could be provided for us. For us to be rebels and renegades against a holy God means that God cannot be righteous and forgive us. He had to punish us. And so what happened is that God, the perfect God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came and offered himself, flawless and impeccable, to God's mercy and allowed himself to be, to, to be murdered, brutally murdered, in our place. And God accepted it. 
God is completely satisfied and allows you to live. So there is a grace, and it hath appeared to all men. From this point on, it's out. From this point on, all men are required to repent. That the Son of God has come, and that the, the atonement has been paid, and that it is offered to all breathing men and women and children. That, and all are required to come to their God, because now you can come to your God. Before Jesus Christ, I could not come to God and be accepted. Chris thanked God that he accepted us. And I'm like, amen. Amen. To be accepted. There is nothing acceptable about me at all. Nothing. But I come because the atonement of Jesus Christ was put in my place. And because of that, I can approach God with full confidence that he will treat me kindly all of my days, forever and always, because of what Jesus did for me. He lived for me, then he died for me. It appeared to all men, it's available to all humanity, to anyone who believes, puts their faith into the person of the Lord Jesus, that that, that person is worthy of being your Savior, capable of doing it, and desirous to be your Savior, and will completely save you. And what saves means is that you have to know first that you are an offender. There is no salvation from someone who's not offended God. Jesus said, I only come to the sick. To the well, I never came. Now, there's, there's irony in that statement, of course. He understands there's not, a, there's not a well person among the entire human race. But he only came for the sick. So if you know that you need Jesus, that you must be rescued from your sins, then you come to him. And anybody that comes to him, he accepts. And he doesn't accept based upon your merits. It's not the good among you, and I'll, I'll look at you and grade your paper. It is the merits of Jesus that you're graded on. That means that you can be as bad as you want to be. You can be as bad as any member of the human race. You can be the foulest of the foul. And to come and place your faith, your simple faith, that is worth only the paper that is printed on, and put it on the Lord Jesus, that is the, that's something worthy of putting your faith in. Jesus is honored by that and will save you, even you, even me. That is the beautiful gospel. Then, and he's telling Titus here that there has been a grace offered to all men that brings salvation. Now, when I, when I was thinking about the book of Ezra and that Ezra set his heart to, to study the word of God, to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, to do it, and then to teach the statutes in Israel. Then, of course, the next question is, well, then how does the law, that, how does the law help me? How does the law bring me to God in such a way that the law will outlive the world? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot nor tittle of my law will ever pass away. It's eternal in the heavens which means there is something about the law of God that is for us. It's not to be ignored by us. It's to be treasured by us. It's to be the most important thing for us. 150 years ago, there wasn't a church in Christendom that did not have the Ten Commandments on the wall above the, above the pulpit. Why? Because it's for Christians. The law brings you to Jesus, but then the law is absolutely essential in helping you grow in Christ. 
So as we look at this grace that brings forth salvation and that it appeared to all men, the next word in verse 12 is that it is a teacher. It is a teacher. And that this moral law, this Ten Commandments, this great commandment that you're to love your neighbor as yourself and love the, the Lord with all of your heart, this, this summation of what it means to love God first and then love others next that is summed up in the Decalogue, which is the ten, the ten re- total commandments, is interesting because what it does, it's an instrument of conviction and it's an instrument of transformation. So if you have already been convicted of your sins and you know, absolutely know, that you have no standing before God at all and that you will be destroyed and that's the end of it, then you come to Jesus because a Savior has been offered to you. But as coming to Jesus, that conviction, how would you know that you need to be saved? The only way that you know is that you need to know who God is and you need to know who you are. You need to know that there is an infinite gulf between you and your maker that cannot be breached. there's There's no bridge that can go across it except for Jesus Christ. If you then put your faith in that, you realize that the same Ten Commandments that showed you to be a sinner can also then transform your life because what it's doing, it's showing you who your God is. The Ten Commandments is showing what righteousness means. What does it mean to be lined up flawlessly, perfectly, perfectly with God? That's what the law does. So the law doesn't save you. The law only condemns you. But the law that, that made you know that you were damned, that made you know that you needed a Savior, that brought you to Jesus, then can help you in that transformation because you're looking into the very character of your God. That's what it's doing. So it is never a means of achieving salvation. Um, I'll say that every single time that I talk about the law. It's never a means of achieving salvation, but it's indispensable for righteous living. You will not live righteously unless you look into who your God is, What's the character of God? What does it mean to do right? What does it mean to do wrong? If you do not know, then you'll make it up for yourself. And I have known every flavor of cuckoo Christian who makes it all up for themselves and decides for themselves what they're going to do and decides what right is and what wrong is, defines it for themselves, decides what they have decided that they're, they're going to be and that the God that they're going to worship, and it's all a big confusion. You must go to who God is and the requirements that God has made on us is not light enough to carry. I can't carry those requirements. When God says, be holy, I have to laugh in his face because I'm incapable of it. But as God said, be like me, if I can look at those words, I can now know what to be like God means. I can look at the commandment and realize that that commandment is perfectly righteous meaning it lines up with who God is. To look at the commandment means to look at what God would do. If I look at who God is and what he would do, then I can know God. Now as I know myself and as I know God, that brings me to Jesus. And that's just the first day of eternal life, everlasting life, is that first day 
of the conviction brought by the moral law of God that brings you like a schoolmaster with a switch to Jesus, your Savior. And now it goes further. It's not a once and done forever thing. It is a first day of a walk that will never end for all of eternity. So it's indispensable if you want to live righteously. You must know who God is so that you can then do it too. And it is a reflection of God's holiness, but it's also a guide for our conduct. So it's not the law's strict observance, because that is cinder blocks that you could never carry on your shoulders. It's too heavy. To be like God is just to me to be miserable. And for me to preach, be like Peter, be like Paul, be like Isaiah, is just only to give you misery. Because I can't do that. I can't even be like Peter, the goofball. To be like Jesus is so beyond me, but yet that's God's will for us, that we would be conformed to the very image of the character of his son, that you could overlay me onto Jesus Christ and not be able to see anything except Jesus Christ. That is what we will be when we see him. When we see him, we will be like him, for we know we will see him as he actually is. Our characters will be flawlessly conformed so that our heart will want to love God just like Jesus loves God, that our heart will want to obey God and do obey God exactly the way Jesus obeys God. There will not be a difference in our character. Now, don't think that we will be exalted equal to Jesus. Ha! Jesus will be always infinitely high, and we will spend eternity learning who he is. But I will learn with an unsinning heart, thank the Lord, to never suffer two minds, to never worry about my sin, to never try to look good because I'm trying to hide the real me. That'll never go again. That will all be in the grave. And that grave, along with all of your sin, will burn with fervent heat and never be, be retrieved again. You will have pure hearts before God because the righteousness is from the grace that appears to all men bringing salvation. That's why. So it is a hope. So let's go on with the next verse. I'm going to split this next verse into two parts. There's a first part, second part. So verse 12, starting at the beginning teaching us, this is the grace that teaches us, interesting, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. So it's a teacher. It's a teacher. I wrote down something and, and laughed. I giggled and, and Melissa was, was studying and she said, what are you laughing about? And I said, I wrote something down and someone's going to need to quote me on this one. This is like Brian quote. And I wrote, Saving grace is a teacher that uses the law of God as his textbook. And I just thought, <laughs> that's good. The law of God is simply the textbook that the teacher uses. And the teacher is the grace of God that's appeared to all men. And that that grace that brings salvation teaches me to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly lusts. That there has to be something that changes so the first one, I wrote down six ways that the law of God can aid us in our salvation. Not to save us, but to aid us in our salvation. So the first one under this verse was, number one, it makes me understand myself to be a sinner. When I look at the law, I can now look and say, 
What is God? Who is God in his character? Now, what am I in my character? If I can compare myself to him, then it will lead me to despair or it will lead me to Jesus Christ. It will either lead me to despair when I think, oh, I can't do it. I had a friend whose father, I asked, uh, this was only a couple years ago when I saw him. I hadn't seen him in more than 20 years. And he had prayed for years for his father. His father was a good man, good man, and refused to ever go to church because he said, I am not good enough to go to church. I'm not good enough. I know who I am, and I know what I've done, and I know that for me to go and sing and praise the Lord and and say hi to all these people who are as equal sinners as me as I would be a hypocrite. Now, he was being very honest. Now, an honest man is a very unusual thing that he said, I can't be good enough for God. And I said, well, have you ever preached the gospel to him? It's the gospel that he needs. He, he is ready. He's prepared. He's prepared. He said, I've preached the gospel. But he, he has condemned himself, and he is decided on despair. And he despaired for years, thinking, well, I'm glad I'm alive today. Thank you, God, that I'm alive because I know that I'll go to hell when I die. And that there are people in this world like that that are living every minute with a thank you, God, that I got out of bed as though somehow praising the Lord that you did not destroy me yet. What a terrible way to live. What a a joyless way to live. And I saw him two years ago, and I said, how's your father? And he said, well, he passed away three years ago. And I said, I'm so sorry. And then he just grabbed my hand and he said, Before he died, he understood the gospel. He understood, and he looked straight into God's face, and he was happy. That he understood that it was a Savior that allowed him to be right, not just to despair, but to drive you to Christ. And it's the law that does that. The law does that. When I hear the law being preached, I say, Amen, Amen, Amen. One time I sat under a service. And this guy was preaching the law, and normally I just ignored the preacher. I would just play with the hymn book. I put the hymn book down, and I'm like, he's going to preach the gospel. I could feel it. I knew what he was doing. He was going to preach the law, preach the law, preach the law, preach the law. He was going to put so many cinder blocks on on my back that I couldn't move and that I needed to run to Jesus. And then he gave an altar call. And I was so angry, honestly, true, true, true. I was so angry, I almost flipped the pew. I was so angry with this man. How dare you preach the law and not preach the gospel? You preach the law to bring people to Christ, and then you tell them there's a Savior for them. Because Jesus took upon your punishment, and he died on the cross in your place, that you might be free, that your heart might be free. So the law is good. The law is a schoolmaster, and schoolmasters are good. And it makes me know that I'm a sinner. It makes me know that I'm a sinner. The second thing I wrote is that I understand through the law that God is holy. I need to know not just myself, but I need to know who God is. His moral law reflects his holiness and his unchanging character. That's who God is. That's what righteousness means, that God is is more than anyone. He doesn't have peers. Who among you, uh, who among the gods are you, God? That's what what David said. Who among the gods are you? 
You're peerless. You're matchless. There's no one that's up to you that you are only God. That is all. So this grace that appears to all men teaching us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly lusts, that is a big deal. How are you at denying ungodliness? How are you at, at denying worldly lusts? Well, I would say I'm a pretty big stinking failure. But oh my goodness, I'm better than I used to be. Way, 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 way better than I used to be. And that gives me some hope. And that's, for, that's my point for later, that that gives me hope. When I look into the law, I can see where I am, and it makes me sad. Oh, God, I'm not holy like you. I'm, my lines don't line up with yours flawlessly. I'm so distorted. I'm so wobbly. Uh, I'm not like a coat that you could wear. You wouldn't be, you know, I'm one long arm and one short arm. I'm a, I would be a terrible coat for the Lord Jesus to wear. Because I don't line up with his character. But oh my goodness, where I've been and where I will go, I will be perfect. David said, I will be like gold that comes out of the furnace, ready for a king. That is what he said. I love it. Let's look back in verse 12. Not only does this grace that has appeared to all men teach, teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, but that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's what it teaches us. Not just that I should deny what this world is tricking me with, all of the baubles that it wants to give me, all of these acclaims, everything that you want, and even want for your children, because you've been tricked along with everybody else to breathe. You breathe that poisonous air of this world. You want to be like everybody else, and you want your children to be like everybody else so that they can, they can be better. But, but the grace of God turns the world upside down in your heart, makes you know what God says, which is completely different from what you hear from kindergarten on, that we should live soberly. So soberly means self-disciplined, self-controlled. Even the word discipline means that I'm being taught, that I'm a teachable person. So you can, as a teacher, you would imagine that there are people that I try to teach who are not teachable. They refuse to be taught. They will not be taught. They will not comply. They'll not submit. They'll not in any way admit that they don't know what they know and that they don't care. They refuse to be taught. They can't be taught. In 32 years of teaching, only once did I come up with a, with a child that the school district had to go to the state and call him incorrigible. Okay, this is interesting. This was only a couple of years ago. The school district said he refuses to be taught by any of his teachers. He refuses to do anything that's asked of him. He refuses. And there is a form that you have to fill out with the education department at the state saying this child is incorrigible and refuses to be taught, and so the, the state of West Virginia washes their hands of him. We're no longer required to teach him because he cannot be taught because he's incorrigible. Well, the law of the Lord allows me to be sober. That means self-discipline. That means that I'm controlled, that I have a teachable spirit. When I look into the, into the law of God and the subsequent punishment that must come from a lawbreaker, because God is righteous, he's just, he will punish sin. And I see that. It crushes me. It 
breaks me like a horse, breaks me like a mule, so that that horse now can be ridden. That is, that's, a, that's interesting that it allows me to, be, to, be, to have a sober minded. God hasn't given me the spirit of fear, but love and power and a sound mind, a disciplined, controlled spirit. That's what the spirit of God does. It allows you to not be the demoniac that breaks 12 chains and has to live in the, in the tombs, but allows you to be sitting quietly at Jesus' feet, clothed in your right mind. That's what the law of God does. The teaching grace that brings salvation teaches me to be sober. <clears throat> it teaches me to live righteously. And that's just the angles again. That's my geometry lesson. That whatever Jesus' character is, I look into that character and slowly the Spirit of God changes my character into Jesus' character. That's why you can look and that's why you can still, as a, at the end of a long life, say, God, I'm failure as a Christian. But thank you for changing me because it's a slow thing. The sanctification, the holiness, progressive holiness that God builds in your life as you look at Jesus as you look at your Savior, as you look at his beauty, the beauty who in, in whose law I delight, as we just sang today, the, the king in his beauty that I love to look in the law, it's my delight to look at the beauty of God through his law. That's what Fanny, Fanny Crosby said. That's what we think, that as we, as we change, as we look, as we look at God, it changes us. We go from glory to glory to glory to glory. And we live righteously. And I, I actually had to, <clears throat> to take a whole piece of paper and I went, righteous, godly. What's the difference? Isn't it the same? If I live righteously, isn't that the same as living godly? And the answer is absolutely no. Righteously means I'm like God in his character. And godly means my heart is devoted to him. Jesus Christ was godly and righteous. Jesus Christ did exactly the way God would do as a man, but Jesus Christ's heart was loving towards God continuously. It wasn't just, I'll do it, now. Nah, I won't like it as I do it. Have you ever had a child obey you in a spiteful attitude and did everything you said? Okay, absolutely obey you in a hateful attitude. Jesus absolutely conformed to God's image and loved him while he did it. That's godliness. Godliness is my face is towards God like a sunflower always chasing the sun. That's godly. Righteously means that I'm starting to behave like God, that he's taken this wild animal and broken it into a horse of power, that I could live like him. And so number three, that the, law, the moral law of God allows me to experience faith and repentance, that I trust God, that's my godliness, but also repent, that's my righteous living. It allows me, I can, I can look at it, it shows me my need for faith because it shows me who I am. If it shows me that I can't do it, then I must trust Jesus. And as I trust Jesus, that's faith. And as I trust Jesus, he then says, live like me. Not try real hard and see how you can do, but because I've done it, you do it. Every command in the New Testament is based on the fact that God has done something for you, now do it. Now live, live in, a, in a, an impossible life because of what God has done for you. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As I, as I wrote godly, I just, I just looked for passages that would 
that would share this. And this one was so beautiful. I just want to share this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we that in simplicity and in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. That is one of the sweetest verses I've ever read. Paul is saying that not in a tricky way, the rejoicing of our testimony, what makes me happy about my Christian life is this, Paul said. What makes me thrill is that without being tricky and not trying to, 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 to snowball anybody, but just in very simplicity and in godly sincerity, totally sincere before God, just by God's grace, we've lived in front of you and loved you. That's, that's our life. That's what it is. We simply are so thankful for it. We're so thankful for what God has done. We see the value in it. And as we see the value in it, we simply live simply. We, we, we break the, the pretenses, all of the pretenses that we've tried all of our lives to act like a big smarty pants or a big fancy pants, whoever we wanted to be and tried to be. Now we realize, psh, just live simplicity and godly sincerity in front of other people and love them. That is what Jesus did. Jesus came as Savior. He came as Savior, not as judge. He came as Savior. So let's look at 13. This is back to Titus. Looking for that blessed hope. How many times has Rick Hayher said, thank you for that blessed hope? The blessed hope. That hope that's not I hope something will happen, but that hope is that it will absolutely happen, and I thank you for it. It just hasn't happened yet. The glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior. Do you see Paul calling Jesus Christ our great God? Jesus, our God. Jesus wasn't just a puppet in our God's hand. Jesus is our great God. And it, so number four, I said, the law of God allows me to have assurance. I can have assurance because I can look into the law of God and see what right means. This is right. Now I can look at me. I can look at my reflection in the mirror and say, do I overlap? Do, is my angles the same as Jesus Christ? And when I say, oh, no, they aren't. But wait a second. You look closer and go, but look how they've changed. Do you not see that that makes you assured? That he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Lord Jesus? That if you have even any love for God, that's a change from what you used to have. If you've ever served God with any fashion at all, that's more than you used to serve him. You used to be nothing but an enemy. And now you want holiness. Now you hunger after righteousness. There's something in you that's different, and that gives me courage. Now, when I look at who I am and I go, oh, I'm failfully, woefully inadequate, it still I can say, but one day I will be like him because I will see him as he is. There is a comfort and an assurance in your walk. You can, be, you can walk away from this room knowing God has got this, and he has got me, and he will take me all the way home. This is 1 John chapter 2. This is all John's message. John's, this is John's message over and over again. Hereby we know that we know him. How do I know that I know him? How do I know that I'm saved? If we keep his commandments. 
Now, if that ended there, if that was the only fragment of the Bible ever found, I'm like, oh, how do I do that? I can't keep God's commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Do you remember? And we read also in, in this morning that that love, the love basically is the fulfillment of the law. As, as you love, you're, it, covers all, it covers all your, your, your inadequacy. It covers it up and allows you to see only Jesus. The lover becomes invisible. The more loving you are, the more invisible you are, and the more Jesus is shining through you. That's what happens. And I see that in myself and go, okay, I'm not what I will be, but I know that I will be because of what God has promised. I can see something in my life. And here's the last one. This is 14, Titus 2. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous for good works. Do you see this is all Jesus doing it? Jesus is doing it all. I'm not pulling myself up the Tower of Babel, trying to be like Jesus, trying to act God, trying, trying to say, oh, I need to act more patient, or I need to act more loving, or I need to do this, as though how, somehow I'm pretending. It's not pretense. As Jesus, is, he gave himself for him that he might redeem us. He paid a ransom for us. He redeemed us with his very blood from iniquity. He pulled us away. He bought us out of that slave market of iniquity, and he put us back on the rock. That's what he did. And he doesn't just pull us out and set us up, but he purifies us. It's Jesus Christ that that sanctifies you. It's Jesus Christ as you look to him, as you look to him, your face has changed. Something happens that makes me thrilled because it gives me not just an assurance, but it gives me that, that knowledge that the transaction took place in the past. He did it. He took me out of iniquity. That's something that's already happened. It's done. So just like the beginning when you go to the law, of, at, right at the beginning you say, I am damned in front of a holy God and it's done. Now you realize... I am righteous in front of a holy God, and it's done. It's not that I'm not there yet, and I haven't graduated yet, but I will one day. No, I am in his vision the same as Jesus Christ now. Right now, he does not see any difference because God is not a person in time like we are. He doesn't say, well, it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. He's looking at all ends of it right now, and he sees us now with him in heaven. He understands in one fell swoop that Jesus paid the penalty for our transgressions and redeemed us for himself, a peculiar people unto good works, that that's what he did. And so it lets me live a sanctified life. Praise God for this. It lets me live a sanctified life. The law of God is not negligible. It's not ignorable. It's not dispensable. It's what we need. You need to remind yourself of who your God is so that you then can preach the gospel to yourself. And it's that preaching the gospel to yourself continuously that will, will allow you to be saved in the first place and allow you to be comforted every day that you flop and every day that you're not like Jesus. Because one day you will be in heaven with him. And in God's mind, it's already happened. Amen.